2 Peter 1. Starting from the beginning. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so short-sighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it's right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain." And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you'll do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit." Amen. Well, do keep that passage open in front of you, please, and I'm going to pray and ask for God's help. Let's pray. Almighty God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word, given as a light shining in a dark place. As I preach it now, please would You increase in us faith and hope and love for the glory of Your name. Amen. Well, we're just two days away from the start of a new year, 2020, and at the end of one year and the beginning of the other, I'm sure this is a time when many of us are looking back at what's been in 2019 and looking forward to what's coming 
in the new year. For the best part of 2,000 years, Christians have been looking back to those climactic events 2,000 years ago, the birth at Christmas, of course, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension on high of Jesus Christ. Looking back, but also looking forward to the day when Jesus Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, to set up his kingdom that will never end. When we think about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, that day to come when he will return to this world to judge and to set up a new heaven and a new earth, I guess there'll be a range of responses in this room, a range of thoughts that come to our minds. For some of us, perhaps, the second coming of Jesus is something that we long for. Maybe as you look back on just this past year, 2019, it's been really tough things have been hard. Maybe you're in the middle of difficult situations right now, and that cry that was on the lips of the early Christians, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, is not far from your lips and your heart as well. Maybe you just wonder if you can hold on to the end. I guess, though, there'll be others in this room for whom the idea of Jesus Christ coming again in glory to judge is a frightening thought. Perhaps it's not one you want to consider. You kind of wish the Bible didn't talk about it and preachers didn't preach about it. Perhaps you are aware that things are not right between you and your maker. You know something of your sin, but you don't yet have the assurance that your sin has been paid for, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for your sin so that you might be reconciled to God, that you will be able to stand in the judgment and not having that assurance, the thought of Jesus coming back to judge you is a fearful one. Perhaps you hope it won't happen. Perhaps there are others who just, you've got your own plans for 2020 and the idea of Jesus coming back anytime soon would put a spanner in your works. I guess there'll be others here today for whom the whole idea of Jesus Christ returning bodily to judge the world, returning on the clouds, righting all wrongs, reigning in glory and power, recreating the heavens and the earth, just sounds ridiculous. It sounds like a, a made-up story, a piece of mythology. And if you're not yet a Christian here, you're very welcome with us this morning, but I imagine that's the way you think about the second coming of Christ. Surely we can't be serious about this idea and yes, there are so-called Christian preachers and so-called Christian churches who will add fuel to the fire, telling us that the second coming of Jesus is to be reinterpreted mythologically, mystically. It's not ever something that's really going to happen in our time and space universe, but it's a, it's a tool that we can use to encourage us to build the kingdom of God here and now in our own strength, with our own resources. Or others will find the whole idea something slightly embarrassing. It's got to be expunged from the Bible if we're to make it acceptable to modern man and modern woman. None of this is new. It was all there when the Apostle Peter wrote his letter many years ago. Peter, we're probably most of us familiar with him, probably the most famous of Jesus' 12 apostles, Simon Peter, or Simeon Peter as he's called, here. Two of the letters in the New Testament are attributed to him. And this one, his second letter, written towards the end of his life in the 60s AD, just before he was martyred at the hands of the Romans. 
Now, this is just a a one-off sermon. We don't have time to get into the whole letter. We're just going to focus on chapter 1. But I think it's good for us, before we do that, just to get a a sense of the whole so that we see the context for the chapter that we're going to look at. So I've tried to sum up the whole of this letter of 2 Peter for you in just three sentences. And here they are, as short as I can make them. In fact, if you've got the order of service, you'll see that there are three parts to the sermon on the back here. Now, I'm going to preach them in the order that's on the the piece of paper there, but as we think about the book as a whole, they come in a slightly different order. So just listen first. Here's 2 Peter in three sentences. So first of all, number one, Jesus Christ is coming back for sure. Jesus Christ is coming back for sure. Number two, we have, if we're Christians today, all we need to be sure about that and be saved. And number three, so live holy and godly lives in the light of that day. That's the whole letter. If you read it later on, you'll see that in chapters 2 and 3, the false teachers come to the fore. They're not so much in the foreground in chapter 1, so we'll leave them to one side for the moment, although they do come back a little bit later on. Now, the order that these things come up in chapter 1 is the order that's on the sheets here, and it's the order we'll be looking at them this morning. Chapter 1, if you like, is a, <clears throat> a microcosm of the whole letter. The main themes are all there, and Peter is paving the way for where he's going in the rest of the letter. So let's jump straight in, uh, beginning with verses one to four, particularly verses three and four, we have all we need to be sure and be saved. Verses three and four. These two verses are all one sentence in the original, and the he and the his and the hymns of these verses speak about Jesus Christ. He's the one who's been referred to at the end of verse two, Jesus our Lord. And he has divine power Because, as Peter's already said in verse 1, he's none other than our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You won't find a more striking and clear statement of the divinity of Jesus Christ in the Bible than this one. There's only one main verb in the sentence that is verses 3 and 4. When we were in seminary, we were told, if you want to know the main point of any sentence in the Bible, find the main verb. And sure enough, that'll give us the hint here. It's in in verse 4 at the beginning. He's granted us, or he's given us, we might say. Well, what has Jesus granted these Christians? And by extension, all of us too, if we're Christians as well. Well, first of all, in verse 4, he's granted his precious and very great promises But there's more in verse 3, expressed in a a string of dependent clauses. He's granted us, again, verse 3, same root verb as verse 4, all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's called us to his own glory and excellence. We've received knowledge, Peter says, of him as the one who's called us. Just as back in verse 2, we have knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. In fact, if you look back to the very first verse of the letter, you'll see there that Peter says believers have obtained or received a precious faith, a faith that's of equal standing to the apostle Peter's own faith. Now, it is fundamental for Peter and for the Bible's understanding too that the life of faith is not something we grant to ourselves. 
It's not something we give to ourselves. Maybe not the way we instinctively think about things. We like to think, perhaps, that ultimately we are the ones who are the arbiters. We decide whether to have faith or not. No, says Peter, it's not like that. Your faith's a gift. So is your knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's a grant. So is Jesus' calling to be his precious possession, what Peter will later call your election in verse 10. So are all his precious promises. In fact, everything you need for life and godliness comes as a divine grant from heaven, from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we can be sure that we'll never be left ill-equipped for the struggles that we face in the life of faith in 2020. No matter what comes our way in the year ahead, we can be sure, and isn't that encouraging when we think about what might be waiting for us in the days to come? Jesus has got us into this. Jesus promises to get us through this. And Jesus tells us where we're going as well. In verse 4, Peter expresses our destination in quite remarkable terms. Did you notice that? He says, believers are to become partakers of the divine nature. We just don't find that kind of language anywhere else in the, New anywhere else in the Bible. What does Peter mean? Well, it certainly can't mean that we ever become God, that we stop being created things and start being creator. We'll always be creatures for all eternity. But theologians like John Calvin have still looked at this verse and written clearly about a sense in which Christians are deified. Deified. We truly become like God. In what way? Well, the sense must be that we become holy as God is holy, that just as we are being transformed and recreated in the likeness of the Son of God made in Jesus' image, so we come to partake in the holiness and the righteousness and the goodness of God Himself. And that's why Peter says believers have escaped the corruption of the world through their sinful desire. Now, this has begun for all true Christians, but it's not complete for any of us today. None of us would want to say that we were completely deified in this sense or glorified. The Apostle John tells us that it's when Christ appears that we'll be like Him, because that's when we shall see Him as He is. It's not finished, it's not complete, but it is the Christian destiny. And in that sense, it's absolutely certain. See, Jesus promises to us here and in the rest of Scripture, they're only really great and very precious promises because they're sure. If there was any doubt about them, or if they depended on me to fulfill them, they wouldn't be that great and that precious because they wouldn't be fulfilled. The promises might appear in conditional form, but the difference is that Jesus himself supplies all the necessary conditions. He'll complete the work he's done in you if you're a believer in him. He'll give you everything you need for life and godliness. So biblically then, being saved isn't just something that happened in the past at some point in time when you put your trust in Jesus Christ. It is that, 
But it's more than that. Something that's happening now in the present as Jesus Christ equips you for living the life of faith, giving you everything you need for life and godliness. And it's something that will happen in the future as Jesus Christ completes your salvation, as you're glorified, deified even, partaking in God's divine nature. On the basis of Jesus' sure word, he doesn't lie. And his divine power, he can't be thwarted. Your salvation is sure. We have all we need to be sure and to be saved. Now, at this point, I can hear an objection. If my Christian life is so certain to be a wonderful success, why does it not feel like that? If Jesus has made all these great promises to me that supposedly can never fail, why does Peter express them in terms of if in verse 8, if in verse 10, if these qualities are yours, if you practice these qualities, why does he talk about Christians who are ineffective and unfruitful in verse 8? Because that's how I feel most of the time. Well, to answer these objections, or to try to, Let's turn on to our second point, verses 5 to 15. And this is a command. Live holy and godly lives in the light of that day. Now, in this longer section, 5 through 15, there are actually two main commands or imperatives uh, in these verses. In verse 5, make every effort. And in verse 10, be all the more diligent. These are uh, school report words aren't they? Uh, a couple of days ago, I went with my family to uh, have tea with one of the elders in this church. I won't tell you who it is, but he was my primary school teacher in primary six, and uh, he kept some of my jotters from primary six, and it was rather embarrassing to look through, and they were all written over with red ink, and you could see it there, the words of the teacher to the pupil, make every effort, be diligent. But here, these are not just the words of a teacher trying to get his pupils to do a bit better. They're the words of an apostle and a pastor who's showing his flock the only safe way to life's finishing line. In essence, what Peter's doing in this section, he's unpacking what it looks like to live the life that is participation in the divine nature. He's showing us what it means to live the godly life that Jesus has given us already everything that we need to live. That's why he says in verse 5, for this very reason, because Jesus has promised to give you everything you, everything you need, this is how you're going to live. You can do it. You must do it. There is a difference, isn't there, between doing something for your children and equipping them to do it themselves. This happens every Christmas when the Christmas presents arrive, and every year they become more and more complicated. Ten years ago, it was just a question of putting the batteries in. Now it's logging in and connecting it and putting in the passwords and setting up the credit card details. I could do it myself, but better, isn't it, in the long term, if I sit down with the kids and show them how to do it so that they can do it themselves. Probably not with the credit card, actually. <laughs> This is similar to Jesus' strategy with his people. He's granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, but he doesn't live our godly lives for us. He's given us a faith 
that's as precious as the faith of the Apostle Peter, but it's not that Jesus is believing on our behalf. No, we're the ones who live it. We're the ones who believe. There's still lots for us to do, and it can be expressed in these terms of making every effort and being diligent. So what have we got to do? Well, Peter expresses the task in terms of adding seven qualities to our faith. Gives a total of eight. This word qualities, although it's here several times in our English translation, doesn't appear in the original at all. Peter just writes about these things five times in these verses. Verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, verse 12, and verse 15. For some reason, the translators of the ESV, that's the church Bible that we have, have left it as these things at the end of verse 15, although they've translated it these qualities in the other four places. As far as I can see, Peter's still got the qualities in his mind, right through to the end of verse 15. It's these qualities right the way through, and that ties the section from verse 5 to verse 15 together. Anyway, faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. I'm not going to go through each of these and say something about them all. But what I will say is this. If you want to know what the godly life looks like, the life characterized by participation in the divine nature, this is what it looks like. Just a couple of things to be clear about. First of all, this is not a list in chronological or even logical order. It's not that you, you can't move on to knowledge until you've got virtue sorted out so that you get to love at the end of the process. It doesn't work like that. Although, I think there is something significant about Peter starting with faith, which is the root of them all, and finishing with love, which binds them all together. Second, and, and really importantly... This is not a checklist of things we need to do in order to be a Christian or to be accepted by God, to be able to stand in the judgment on the last day. It doesn't work like that. What do I mean? Well, maybe there is someone here this morning who, who thinks about Christianity along those lines. Before I became a Christian, that's how I thought about the Christian faith. God's given us a list of rules or a, a set of qualities and if I can at least in some way measure up to them and tick enough of the boxes, then when I stand before my maker at the end, he'll say, mm, okay, you've just about made the grade. Or not. That is not the message of the Bible. If that's your view of Christianity, I want to show you that it's not the right one. You see, Peter is writing to believers who've already been called, as verse 9 makes clear, They've already been cleansed from their past sins. You see, everything begins with faith. Faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior. Faith in His death in our place. So that when we trust in Him, we are forgiven. Our sins are taken away. We're reconciled to God. So, what about those ifs then that I mentioned earlier on in verse 8? and verse 10. Doesn't that mean that there are conditions attached to God's grace? After all, preachers might say it's all free, but really there's an if there, and what happens if I fail to make that grade on the if? Unless I do these things, will I actually perish in the end? It's an important objection. The first thing to say about that is there is no word if in the original in these verses. The translators of our English Bibles have translated the participles as conditionals. That's fine. There's good reason for doing that. But they could equally have been translated as instrumentals. These are the means 
by which we will be kept from being ineffective or unfruitful as believers. Practicing these eight qualities is precisely the means, the instrument by which we will never fall. Remember, Jesus is like the parent who doesn't just tell us what to do, but he gives us the means to do it, and he ensures that we will do it. Theologian John Owen, in his wonderful book on the perseverance of the saints, which I've enjoyed this year, writes this. The most conditional of God's promises are always to be resolved into absolute and unconditional love. You see, the absolute necessity of living a holy and godly life in the light of Christ's return is of fundamental importance to the Apostle Peter. That's why he spends so much time telling us about it. But he doesn't doubt for a minute that believers will do it. It's not because he looks out at a room of believers and he thinks, these guys are great. I'm sure they've got all the moral and spiritual resources in themselves to do this thing. No, it's because he knows Jesus Christ, the divine one. And he trusts Jesus Christ's promise to give them everything that they need. Making your calling and election sure, in verse 10, doesn't mean that your calling and election, if you're a believer, is not sure. It's about not presuming on that call. Not presuming on God's grace, but working out the implications of it in your life as he works in you. Have a look at verse 12. See, Peter wants to remind his Christian readers of these qualities, not because they don't know anything about them, not because they don't manifest them in any way in their lives. No, he's fully aware. He says, you know them. You're established in the truth that you have. But Peter wants them to increase in these things, to go on and on, to take not one step forward, but two, three, four, because he knows that effort and diligence in godly living is precisely the prescription that Jesus Christ has given to get us to heaven. And part of that prescription is the kind of reminders we have here in the Bible that Peter himself has written for us so that we can recall just how important it is that we must lead godly lives. So is it possible then that we can be ineffective and unfruitful as believers? Is it possible that true believers might lack these qualities so much that they're so nearsighted that they're as good as blind? I think we need to say, biblically, with Peter, that it's only possible in a partial and temporary sense what do I mean by that? Well, I'm sure that as, if you're anything like me and you're a Christian, you feel ineffective and unfruitful at times. Most of the time, perhaps. As Peter suggests in verse 9, this happens when, we've, when we're losing sight of the gospel of Jesus, forgetting his forgiving grace. And this can happen and does happen to true believers temporarily. It might be particularly true of someone who's here this morning. But this is exactly one reason why Peter wrote his letter. It's exactly one reason why the Holy Spirit of God ensured that it was preserved for us and kept in the canon of Scripture. It's exactly the reason why it's been given to preachers to preach it, to share it, to teach it, just as I'm doing this morning. 
as a wake-up call to the potentially blind and the potentially forgetful. So if that's you, please don't try starting to add on qualities to your Christian life. A little bit more knowledge, a little bit more self-control, a little bit more brotherly kindness. No, come back to Jesus and faith in Him. That's where it all begins. He'll give you everything you need to live a godly life. I must say, the flip side of this truth is that if your life is utterly devoid of the qualities that Peter talks about here, if you know that you're not making any effort or exercising any diligence to grow as a believer in Jesus Christ, that's a strong indication that you're not a true believer in Jesus. And I wouldn't want to give you any false assurance that you were. Once again, we can't presume on God's grace. All are invited to come first to Jesus, to believe in Him, and He'll supply what we need. If, on the other hand, you know the gospel, you know Jesus as your Savior, please don't hear this from me or from Peter as something to weigh you down. It's quite the opposite. Peter says himself in verse 13, it's to stir you up, not to weigh you down, but to stir you up by way of reminder. Keep going. Make every effort. Be all the more diligent. These means matter. And there's a lovely promise attached to them in verse 10. Not only will you never fall, that's wonderful in itself, but there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's two lovely little things that Peter does with his choice of words here that get lost in translation, but I want to share them with you. First of all, having told Christians to supplement their faith in verse 5, or add to their faith all these different qualities, Peter uses the exact same word in verse 11 to describe the reward. Believers' entrance into Christ's eternal kingdom will be supplemented to them or added to them. So you see how he set it up. Do your part as believers, supplement your faith with every good quality, and it will be supplemented to you with interest, compound interest, if you like, the eternal reward. Second, when Peter talks about his own impending death in verse 15, and we know he's near the end of his life, he calls it his departure or his exodus in Greek. This is paralleled by the isodus or the entrance in verse 11 of believers into Christ's heavenly kingdom. You see, for a believer in Jesus Christ, death is two things, if you like. It's an exodus, an, an exit from this world, but at the same time, it's an entrance, an isodus into heavenly glory. Peter had this sure hope for himself. He knew where he was going. He had a sure hope for these people he was writing to. He knew where they were going, and if we share in their faith, we can share in their hope as well. Now, finishing this second point, which I've called live holy and godly lives in the light of that day, you might be wondering why I'm talking about that day. There doesn't seem to be any explicit reference to the second coming in these verses. That's true, perhaps, but the mention of Christ's eternal kingdom in verse 11 begins this theme that runs through the entire letter, an eternity that's ushered in by Jesus' return, the day of the Lord, or what Peter calls the day of God in chapter 3. So third and finally this morning, uh, verses 16 to 21, the last section of this chapter, 
Peter turns to emphasize his point that Jesus is coming back for sure. This is where we started this morning. In these verses, Peter marshals a series of impressive witnesses to testify to this truth and establish the certainty of Jesus' return against what seems to have been the false teacher's claim that this was just a a cleverly devised myth. The eyewitnesses are, first of all, human eyewitnesses and earwitnesses, Peter and the other apostles who stood with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and saw a foretaste of His coming in heavenly glory. I was there, Peter says. I saw it with my eyes. I heard it with my ears. See, once you've had a taste of something delicious, you want the whole dish, don't you? No no one can convince you that it's not a real thing. And this is the case for Peter and what he's experienced. So he offers his own human witness, but he also brings the entire witness of the Holy Trinity to bear. God the Father, who speaks His word from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. God the Son, the beloved one, who was transfigured on the holy mountain, revealing His glory. And God the Holy Spirit, who, as you read in verse 21, ensured the writing down in Scripture of all the prophecies of Christ's return, prophecies dependent not on the prophet himself, human will, the prophet's own interpretation, but on God Himself. So do you doubt that Christ will return in glory? You have the witness, not just of Christ's apostles, but the witness of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit against you. Now, that will never perhaps convince some skeptics, but it has been granted to believers as a firm witness that we might be certain about this. And so we do well to pay attention to Scripture and its witness in the coming year. Perhaps by recommitting to read it every day, perhaps by following a Bible plan, perhaps by committing to trust it and and follow it wholeheartedly, even when Scripture tells us what we don't want to hear. These things can all be part of paying attention to Scripture. We know these things, don't we, as Christians? We expect our preachers to tell us about them, read the Bible. But Peter puts it in an interesting way, doesn't he, in verse 19. He says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you'll do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The prophetic word of Scripture is like a lamp shining in a dark place. The dark place might be our world, it might be our hearts. But whatever it is, God's written word shines light into that darkness. The images of the day dawning and the morning star rising, these are images of the second coming of Christ. Why then does Peter say that the morning star rises in our hearts? Isn't this actually him admitting that the second coming is really just a spiritual reality that happens within, not something that's going to happen in our world? No, not at all. Rather, what he's saying is that the outward, historical, time and space, visible, bodily, manifestation, the return of Jesus Christ in glory will be paralleled by the rising of the morning star in our hearts so that we are transformed by the Holy Spirit ready to meet Him. On that day, darkness will once and for all be banished. The second coming of Jesus will usher in the kingdom of light. And that's something that as believers we can look forward to and hope for and pray for 
and work for with all the resources that Jesus Christ gives us to get there. His great and precious promises are ours if we trust him. He'll give us everything we need to be sure, to be saved, to stand. This is scripture's testimony. And may it become brighter and clearer and clearer for us as we go on in our walk with Jesus until that day when the morning star rises in our hearts. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we thank you so much for the divine grant of all things that pertain to life and godliness given to us graciously and freely in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the certainty we can have through the words that you've spoken in the Bible and the testimony of apostles and prophets speaking by the Holy Spirit. Please help us in the light of Christ's certain return to live those lives of holiness and godliness to which we are called as we wait for and hasten the coming day of God in this new year to come and for the rest of our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.